Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 393. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 393 you're listening to. My guest today is the return of my good friend, Lef Lefferts, who was originally on episode 101, and I'll include a link in the show notes so you can check that episode out. But Lef spends his time in the world of audio for film, and he comes from an audio for music background. So obviously he's an engineer, but in the world of film, he has spent time and been credited on many films, handling roles such as re-recording mixer, supervising sound editor, sound effects editor. And he has worked on a ton of films that you know, such as Ice Age, Minions, How to Train Your Dragon, The Lorax. And I'll include a link to his IMDb database so you can check out all the films that he's worked on. Hasn't worked just on kids' films. He's worked on a lot of other stuff, too. But nonetheless, he's worked at Skywalker Sound for 16 years, and 14 of those years has been spent working alongside the legendary Randy Tom, who got his start in the era of Star Wars and Apocalypse Now. So Lef has been with one of the true greats along his journey in film, and it's going to be great to just catch up with him. So I haven't seen him in a long time. So looking forward to having him back. Left Lefferts coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about being proactive. Sometime, I don't know, maybe it was like four episodes ago, I did a rant on what you do when the work dries up. And the crux of that rant was you you don't. You don't let the work dry up. You you prevent that from happening. So this is a bit of a continuation on that rant. So Two thoughts, and I'll keep it fairly short. Famous last words. Downtime is an inevitable occurrence. Whether you have a home studio, a commercial studio, whatever, there's going to be downtime. A mistake that a lot of people make, I think, is that they use that downtime in ways that are counterproductive to the business at hand. For example, uh, some people might use that downtime to purchase more gear. I mean, if you're planning a gear purchase, right, that's, you're going to do that, right? But impulsively buying more plugins or more hardware when you have downtime because you think, oh, well, I don't have any work right now, so I'll buy up some stuff and arm the studio up with more gear. When you don't have work, I think is not the best recipe for success. I think the a better use of that time is instead taking the gear you have learning it better, practicing, if you're mixing, if you're mastering, you know, working on stuff that you maybe you already have or downloading some free multi-track files from one of the, the companies out there that offers that to practice with. The other thing that one could do is to reconfigure the studio so it's more conducive to work. But I'm kind of going off the idea that you've already set the place up and it's ready to go. You just don't have clients and I just don't think buying more gear is the answer. Rachel Moore on the last episode in 392, she said something I thought that was really poignant. She said, uh, you know, 
Just because you buy the gear, that doesn't legitimize you. You need to let the work speak for your, for itself. You know, or let the work speak for you, I think she said. So I'm paraphrasing what she said, but I thought that was really a great thing. And that's really what got me started on this thought. So yeah, use your time if you have downtime to not be buying more stuff, but to instead be practicing, to be getting better for your clients. Now, the other thought too of what to do with that downtime, and this is kind of the part two aspect of this or the second idea, and that is the the concept that when it comes to promoting yourself, promoting your, your services, promoting your studio, you can't take your foot off the gas pedal ever. You have to continually do it. I know that even when we do have work, there's a, a time where we get kind of uh, complacent and we want to just be like, yeah, I've got some work and I'm cruising and it's all good, right? But I don't think that that, once again, and this is my opinion, I don't think that's a good idea or a good recipe for success. And this is regardless of whether you don't have work, the work is thin, or you have a ton of work. You always need to be promoting and connecting with people, networking with people. So getting out and you know let's say you're a music studio meeting with musicians meeting with bands meeting with other engineers who might use your place uh, or who might refer you who you have a symbiotic relationship with but getting out there and meeting with people the other thought too is using downtime to invite people into the studio once again not just the musicians or, or potential clients you're going to be working with. They could be voiceover clients. They could be uh, film mixing clients, uh, but also other engineers to just once again, network, know that, you know, if you are set up for this to have outside, outside engineers come in, they're obviously your customers as well. If they're not, that's fine too, but it's good to just network so that people are aware of you because other engineers will come to a point where they may have a gig that they can't do. Maybe they're going out of town and they need it covered. And if they've been to your place, they've talked to you, they've kind of vetted you, they'll think of you in those times and they'll say, hey, you know what? I can't do it, but this other person can. And they've got a great space. So just remember, it's not just the clients you're trying to get. It's the referrals and the camaraderie and uh, symbiotic business relationship with other engineers. Don't look at other engineers as just competition. They, yes, I guess, sure, they are your competitors, but you don't have to have such an adversarial relationship with those other, other engineers. There's, there's work to go around and not everybody's right for all the work, right? So those are my points. Take advantage of that downtime. Do not squander it on just, hey, I'm going to buy some more stuff or I'm going to sit around and wait for the phone to ring and watch TV, right? Get out there, meet with people. And if you're not doing that at the very least, be practicing, getting better at your craft. So you have a better understanding of not just your workflow, but you're better at the actual task of mixing, mastering, recording, whatever it is. The, and I'll say this is also a final thought now that I just said the word recording. If you have an opportunity to do a little bit of pro bono work, free work for some people as a favor in a trade, whatever, uh, that's cool too because that's utilizing your skills and getting better and 
providing something of value to somebody else. And when we do trades and stuff, you know, that's, that's always great. So, and yes, of course it's cool. If you want to get a piece of gear and you want to trade for, you know, uh, doing some free recording for it, that's, that's your choice. But at the end of the day, it's really about being proactive with your time. So think about it. Always feel free to email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. Tell me what you think, because this is all just my opinion, right? But that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Leth Lefferts here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Lef, welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, 101 was the episode you were on first, and now this is going to be 393. Should we have maybe waited until 401? I mean, it just kind of... <laughs> yeah, I can call you back. <laughs> I'll call you back later. It was good to see you, you know, honestly, in, 
in truth, for the audience, we've been sitting here chatting for 30 minutes prior to the start of this interview because I haven't seen you in a while. It's been a long while. It's been a very long while since I've actually uh, spoken with you. Uh, a lot has changed, but there'll be a link in the show notes for the audience to kind of get the beginning story. The continuing story is, is that you're still at Skywalker working alongside Randy Tom and that, yeah. that hasn't changed, but has your role changed? Yeah. You know, I'm, I just, uh, passed across the 16 year mark here at Skywalker. Crap. That uh, went by fast. I know. And, uh, and I've been working with Randy for 14 of those years. So it's been, it's been a real blessing for me. I mean, I think I even said it on the, the last time we got, um, got together for the podcast. I, I count myself really lucky and really blessed to be in the situation that I'm in. I mean, Randy is a, he's been an incredible mentor for me over all these years. And, you know, he's allowed me to grow in my roles and still work with him. So, you know, I've gone from being his assistant to becoming a supervising sound editor and, and mixing a lot more films and, and being part of that creative process, working with him and, you know, our directors and creating these soundscapes and telling these stories. So it's, it's, it's been such a wonderful way for me to, to grow and to, to keep doing what I love doing. So I, I, I couldn't be happier. So what is your current title? Depends on what day it is. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I am a supervising sound editor. I'm a sound designer and I'm a re-recording mixer. I wear all three of those hats. Okay. As things have changed, as the technology's changed, those were all three roles that were in a lot of ways kept very separate and uh, distinct in the past. Like you generally ed- editors and mixers never really commingled in, in the traditional way that these jobs were started out, but you know, with pro tools and, and digital audio and, and everything kind of moving into the box, th- those lines are, are very much blurred where, you know, we can pan while we're cutting, you know, I mean, the, that never used to happen. Right. You know, really you would, you know, back in the day you would cut a sound on mag and you'd get it in sync and you'd turn it over to the mixer and they'd do everything for levels and panning and, you know, pre-mixing things together and, and sort of building the mix. Whereas now we're, we're able to do that. And I, I think that was something that Randy has done and, and championed from the very beginning is that, you know, he starts mixing the moment he starts designing something and with Pro Tools, you know, being able to mix in the box, the stuff that we do, you know, as a temp mix or an early test for, you know, director, we can keep all of that and carry it forward in, in our sessions all the way to the final mix. Things change, obviously, and get tweaked and adjusted and other sounds come and go. But, you know, that's an area where the technology has really helped us sort of create the mix as we, from the very beginning, as we start. What are the benefits to the film in the end with that newer workflow that has allowed, you know, that commingling to happen. Does it, do you think it makes for a better film or does it make for a better workflow for the, for the film and all involved compared to the old days? Yeah, I, I think it does make it better. I, I, I think that it, anybody that might argue for the old, old older workflows is, is more, um, you know, before automation, before console automation, a mix was a performance, right? You had to, you had to really, perform it and get it to tape. And if you were going to punch into it, you had to make sure you were matching. There was a, a lot of different challenges and a lot of uh, different skill sets that that were needed to, to, to get the track to where the director and the mixers wanted it. And I think having 
whether it started with analog console automation now to having everything in the box like it is now and being able to carry our automation through conforming change, you know, picture changes, length changes, things like that. Uh, it does make it easier. It, it does bring up other challenges. I mean, you know, there's a few bugs in Pro Tools occasionally or, or something like that, but it's, uh, it's the ability to, to maintain a creative decision that we made early on and to keep that, you know, it, to make it, uh, the simple example is, is, you know, how many times have we sat there back in the days of analog on mixing a song, trying to get the fade just right. And then all of a sudden you added an instrument and you needed to redo a master fade. Well, when you were doing it by hand, it, it, it was, you had to perform it and then you had to keep performing it. Whereas now with automation, you perform it once and you keep it. I think that's where the technology gives us the ability to do that over a much longer period of time, months of working on something where what we have is we have this, um, you know, it, it could be, uh, take the first How to Train Your Dragon movie, you know, the, when they first fly. You know, all the all the work that we did in the initially to present that to the director was do it all in, you know, in five one at the time. And that the all that work of panning and, and creating this um, soundscape can be kept. Whereas if you did it in analog in the old days, you did a temp mix, you did all this work. And then when it came time for the next temp mix, the things had changed so much and your track layouts had changed and maybe your automation got you know, couldn't be salvaged. You were, you know, you have a little bit of a magic in a temp mix that you can't recreate in the next one. That makes sense. And what does it take in terms of time investment on, I know you're on a break right now from a movie for various reasons, but the average movie that goes according to schedule, but right. Yeah. You're going to laugh. Right. A little bit. Right. Okay. Let's yeah, just say in the ideal circumstances, how long would it, would it take to, to do a movie to, in terms of the mix and, or the audio side of it? Every movie's different. Every budget's different, you know. Um, but you know, a big feature feature film that I've been working on now, we've we've kind of stretched the editorial time out to be a little longer to have a smaller crew. And, you know, we've been on the film for about six months by the time the mix is done. That's that's generally a, that's that's a, that's a, what I would call a luxurious schedule in the sense that we're we're on it for a very long time. I've worked on movies where you know you're you have a team of, of editors coming on and they cut for four weeks frantically because it's a very short compressed schedule. And then there's a two week premix and then, you know, a three week final and then you're done. So it, you know, again, all, all those numbers are kind of arbitrary because the, the needs of the show are kind of different every time. Sometimes, you know, it's, if the movie's really shot in really good shape, they, and we can start early and have a much smaller crew, then we can be involved and really take the time to, to sort of slowly craft something, um, you know, where it's fewer people, where fewer people are touching sort of the whole movie. Um, and in, you know, in the other example of throwing a whole bunch of editors at it, you might have a different editor on each reel. If you have a six reel movie, you might have six effects editors and two dialogue editors or something like that, where they're all contributing a lot quickly. You know, I think these, um, these streaming schedules are a little bit like that, where you have really short turnarounds where, you know, you might have a, a couple of weeks of editorial and then then it's mixed over the course of a week and then it's, you know, out on Disney Plus or something like that. I worked very briefly on uh, on the Hawkeye show just to help out for a couple of weeks. So I got a little glimpse into the craziness that that is because they're, you know, they're shooting a, a, a lot of material and, and cutting it 
frantically and then, you know, sound people have to come in and do all their job. And then it's, you know, they hit these streaming dates. It's, it's a pretty frantic schedule. When you're uh, trying to plan your life, what are the challenges that are, are happening there in terms of the schedules of these, these shows that you're working on? You know, that's probably the hardest part um, is, is trying to, to plan things. I think that in the, you know, we're, we're at the very end of the process, especially, you know, in this, well, whether it's streaming or, or a feature length or, or a series length, you know, the sound and, and color correction are really the last two things that are done. So um, we're kind of at the, the, the will of the, the release date versus everything else being ready. So our schedules can change quite a bit. You know, uh, I think um, you and I would both agree that whether it's filmmaking or, 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 or record making, you know, someone asks you to work on something and you say, yes, you know, we, we, we were always sort of trained in this world to never say no. Um, and, you know, that gets difficult because, you know, all of a sudden you're, 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 you're on a schedule and then their schedule changes and it moves into something else that you had planned afterwards. And then you, when you have that conflict, you know, you, you have to, you know, pretty much stick to the, to the folks that didn't change their schedule and, and it can get, it can get challenging and, and certainly difficult to, to plan vacations. But I think that as we, um, as we get a little bit older, we kind of have to realize that the time, time with the family and, and, and just time away from work is so important that you kind of have to, stick to your guns a little bit and do your best. But I've definitely canceled a number of trips and vacations and not scheduled other ones because of, because of work. That's kind of what we signed up for though. Right. I mean, when, when we all came up in this business, you know, playing music and, and starting things out, you know, it's, we, we're all kind of in service to the craft. We love doing this. So it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of what we signed up for. I, I don't, you know, I love every bit of it. So it's not, um, it's never been, been, been too crushing like you know usually you can plan something out and, and when you want to take that one big trip you can usually make your plans around it and and, and things tend to work out but. you know i don't know if i asked you this in episode 101 but what comes to mind now is i'm curious how you felt about making that transition from music as as your primary thing that you do to working on films was there a little bit of a oh but music i like music but I mean, working on films has been a great career for you. I mean, there's there's many bonuses there. I mean, there's a lot of creativity. There's you're working with fantastic people, but at the end of the day, do you ever just go, oh, my heart, you know, kind of beats for for music? You know, it's funny. I I got asked that question about a, a month or so ago. You know, to to me, they're really very similar. We started to talk about this before we both hit record today, but um, what I've learned through all of it is that when we get into these creative arts, we're telling stories. And to me, they're really kind of the same thing. The, the, the big difference is, is when you're working on a film, you're one of, you know, hundreds of people, especially these big visual effects movies that have all these visual effects artists. And you watch the credits and the credits are, you know, practically a whole reel in and of themselves. Whereas when you sit down and you make a make a record with a trio, it's four of you, mm-hmm. maybe five. The, the process is essentially, I mean, there, there's different technical hurdles and there's different kind of thinking caps to put on and, and doing different, creating different sounds, obviously. But the process is pretty much the same thing. We're still trying to figure out, like, you know, what's the challenge today, whether it's how are we going to, you know, 
wrap our heads around this guitar solo or this scene. It's, it's, it's the same, it's the same kind of thing. I think the big difference for me is that I, I went from working with a, a smaller group of people over, you know, a few months time to a a larger group of people over a few months time. So on that side of things, it really wasn't that different. I think that um, with the music business, what I didn't miss is when I was starting to make that transition was, um, you know, the, the mid two thousands when the the industry was still reeling and, and really didn't know what it was doing and dealing with streaming and, and the, and the change in the, 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 the financial structure of the business. And I was watching it just implode on itself. And so I, I, I didn't miss that. And what I, what I realized that I loved the most about it when I started doing film work it's the process of telling the story. And, and, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about that too. I mean, I've, I've, I've gone back and started doing a lot more music recording uh, as well uh, in, you know, the, the little bit of free time that I have. So it's, it's the, the creative process is the part that you miss in, in, in any career choice. You know what I mean? Like that was, that was the thing that I, I, I ultimately ended up missing, but I didn't really miss it because it's the same thing that I'm doing on the film side. That financial security in knowing that you can, you know, work project to project, film to film, and know that, you know, there's a paycheck and there's more. I mean, it's not going to stop. I mean, filmmaking, people are going to keep making films and people are going to keep making records, but the dynamics financially and and business wise, and it's just so much more Wild West with, with the music world. Well, you know, it, it it wasn't when you know just before you and I kind of got into it, and before I, I think I think the biggest problem, and I think the film industry's challenge has a little bit of the same challenges with with streaming now is, you know, they're they're all wrapped up on the on the the visual side, you know, series and and films and stuff is you know they're all talking about content, and it's it's kind of the same thing. I mean, I think the record industry kept looking at well, you know we've made records and we've made our money this way for so long and, and we're just going to stop this new technology instead of embracing it. They tried to stop it and they tried to change it. And, you know, I, I don't know how much you were impacted by it, but I mean, I, I watched, you know, people come to me and ask them to make records for them and be like, okay, great. And you talk to the label and they're like, well, you know, we have this tiny, tiny little budget because we can't afford to pay to make the record because we don't know if we're going to make money selling it. And, that layer of frustration, you know, it was hard. But there's there's always going to be the the money question. I think when people are dealing with budgets, and if you're you know your work, I work on lots of big budget projects, but I've also worked on low budget projects. And you put a lot of a lot of effort and a lot of heart and soul into something, and maybe not make as much money. But you know, it's it's a project you care about. I think the where the music industry got so frustrating is that they expected you to work on these sort of big projects for no money. And that that wasn't that was misguided on their part, I think. Films continue to get made. There's budgets, they get promoted, some don't, of course. But you know, on the level that you're working at, things tend to get promoted if they're getting, you know, done there on the average, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think that the COVID has really sort of changed that as well. I mean, I, I think that all of the the film studios are are leaning much more towards this the streaming market. I think it all sort of started to to speed up the process of getting to a predominantly streaming market. And they got a little bit of a taste of what it would be like to release certain movies streaming 
and theatrically at the same time, streaming only. Um, Pixar is kind of an interesting one because I think that, uh, you know, the last couple of movies were, were released on Disney Plus only. And, you know, that's traditionally, a you know, something you expect to go see in the theater. And I think that their their rationale was that they they didn't want to make parents uncomfortable going taking young kids into a theater. Still, I, you know, I think that part of it was looking out for for the families in in that sense of like you know, and and also why are they going to put all their eggs in the basket of needing to make money off of a theatrical release when parents might not be comfortable going out? Well, it's fascinating if you compare, like you know. Obviously, we're many, many years past this point, but you know, when streaming first came along, it it just shows me it's a difference between how the music industry can pivot or not versus the film industry. And here, the film industry was like, "Oh, COVID's here. Oh, let's adapt. We have these streaming services. Let's just push it out there. Let's keep moving." And I would hope that a lot of that was sort of learning from the mistakes that the that the music industry made. I mean, it's I. I, I I don't want to keep trashing the music music industry. <laughs> um, I, I just think that it's a little bit of a difficult. Uh, it, it was it was definitely a difficult time for them to 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 get through that change, and and because of the way the music industry weathered it for better or for worse, I think the film industry learned a little from it, and because they because of just the nature of things, they didn't have to deal with it as quickly. You know, very easy to rip a CD than it is to rip a whole movie back in the days when you know we still you know, DSL was the fastest thing out there. You know, now that we have these, these now, now that you can stream an entire movie, it's, you know, that, guys, remember when all of a sudden you could buy, you know, records on iTunes? We were all like, you know, finally we're, we're, giving, we're making it easy for people to, to pay for the service. Well, now it's, you know, hey, it's on Paramount. Okay, well, I'm going to light up Paramount this month for 10 bucks. And I'm going to watch everything I can watch on Paramount for 10 bucks. And, and that's great. And I think that, you know, you're giving people the ability to 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 pay for the product, which is pretty cool. Which we didn't have. The music industry didn't know how to do that, and they couldn't really embrace it the way they. Sh- you know, we we can all say should, but at the same time, it was totally different. Yeah, I, I I have to admit that the movies I know that you are working on over the years, when I've gone to the theater with the family, you know, we've hung out to see the end credits, to see your name. Everybody, stay for the credits. <laughs> Stay for the credits. We're going to see Lef in the credits. And my kids are like, why are we staying here? It's, oh, dad's friend. He worked on this movie. And uh, I'm like, yeah, there he is. See, he's right there. Okay, we can go now. And we can go now. <laughs> and, and of course, sound guys, we're, we're always at the very end. Of course. So when you go to uh, work in music now, and when I say work, I use air quotes because... It's relaxing for you. It's not, I mean, it's still done professionally, et cetera, et cetera, but it's not the same as it used to be for you, I think, in terms of the pressures, you know? Yeah, I think for me, the one thing and um, the one thing that was always the hardest and and uh, I, I always called it the hustle, right? You know, you're no matter what job you're working on, you have to be setting up your next one. You know, that was always the thing. And, and it's, it's no different in, in, in working in film as an, as, a, as an independent um, freelancer. 
where it's a little different for me is that, you know, we're, we're kind of a large family of freelancers here at Skywalker and we, we, we all sort we, we work together. And, and that's, I think what was very different from being in music and, and, and sort of being a, a lonely Island, so to speak. And I was never really good at that. That was always really hard for me to be a hundred percent into making the record I'm working on and, and worrying about the next record if it wasn't already lined up. You know, the, the plant years were great because, you know, you were booked a year on some records. If you had two records lined up the next year, you didn't have to worry as much, you know, and then everything else you filled in was gravy. I think that was the part that was so that was also not just the industry changing, but that was also personally hard for me because there was just something I was not great at doing. Um, but yeah, so now when I get to work in music because it's not, you know, my primary source of income. It, it it's it's a real joy it, it's it's allowed me to really focus on things like you know on working on songs and and working with songwriters and song structure and and telling that story in in a in a unique and fun way hey our friends over at distrokid have created the distrokid app for android which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from apple and spotify edit release metadata upload new releases and a host of other features and remember wca listeners get 30 percent off your first year at DistroKid. and if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash wca30 you can follow the link get your 30 percent off and be off to the races so check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30 percent off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash wca30 about a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you think that there could ever be a time where the music industry is very much like the movie industry in terms of the the economy of it, the standards of it, the the power that it wields? That's a tough question because I think it I think it was. I think it, it really did have it. And I think that, you know, as much as in a lot of ways the technology has made things easier for us um as far as making film soundtracks and 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 records and things like that and and made it more accessible. I mean, I love I love the Billie Eilish story, right? You know, I love the fact that that, that first record was made in a bedroom. You know, there were there was a time when everybody was really upset by that. Of course, yeah, there was a time where it, there were those standards and there was that economic uh security for a lot of people. So I guess my question more pertains to, do you think we could ever get back to that? 
I think it'll always be different. The industry got hurt by by the the, the loss of that sort of mo- traditional monetary structure, and in a lot of ways, it didn't recover from it because the artists lost a big revenue stream. The people making the records lost a big revenue stream. That, that this traditional stream that was there, but at the same time, because of the technology and because of iTunes and DistroKid and Spotify and and all these other streaming services, now you kind of have this sort of great equalizer that anybody can make a record and put it out there that anybody can listen to. And so maybe the the difference there is, is that it's, um, you know, maybe there should be sort of more of a, of a, of a standardization of, of, of how we um, get stuff into the, into the services, um, which is there a little bit, but um, you know, just as we were talking about, about like QC and, music music atmos mixes you know we've got to hit certain right. numbers and we we we, we want to reach a point where we're presenting stuff to these streaming services that it all sounds the same without you know them just putting you know the a big compressor across everything um that's <laughs> a hard question to answer because I, I i don't really know if there is an answer let's talk a technical aspect and comparison for a bit so so you've been working on like we said for the last 16 years over at Skywalker. So in that time period, you were well aware of Dolby Atmos long before the, those of us in music were aware of it. First Atmos mix was actually Pixar's Brave. Boy, that was, when was that? I'd have to look that one up, but it was 10 years ago, if not more. What What is your perspective and, and maybe the, the perspective of your other film sound colleagues about those of us in the music world now hopping on board that train? Is there any skepticism that you have or hope? I I certainly don't think there's skepticism. I think the format's wonderful for a lot of things. I don't think that, uh, that I don't think that everything needs to be done in Atmos. I'm sure Dolby wouldn't want to hear me say that, but I, you know, again, it's about storytelling. Like, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for the, the ability both in music and in film storytelling to take advantage of that format and, well, let me back up for a second. I had somebody come and talk to me probably a year ago and, and ask the same question that you and I have been talking about the last day or so of, you know, how do you get people excited about immersive mixing, immersive audio, immersive music for the consumer? And I think ultimately the answer is, is you have to you have to have somebody embrace it. And I think when Apple embraced spatial audio in their streaming platform, it opened a big door. I mean, you know, you and I, as well as a bunch of our our friends here in the Bay Area have been, been doing immersive audio for a long time, both in film and in music. And it it didn't really have a a place to go. You know, it didn't have a it didn't have a platform. Yeah, there were a few people, I mean, remember when SACDs came out? Yeah. You know, I mean, it was like DVD audio, all this stuff. I mean, I remember when, you know, Randy Staub came down and they re- they pulled all the the Black Album out of the archives to go and, you know, do a big 5-1 mix of, of the Black Album. And it sounded killer. But how many people had the ability to play it? Right. There was no no avenue for it. Yeah. And, and even some of the, the theatrical Atmos mixes that we do will never translate into home, home theater. You know, I mean... Let's talk technical for a second. In in a in a big in a big theater, you have a stereo array in Atmos above uh, your your tops, your left and right tops, and depending on the size of the theater, it's you know six eight speakers 
when you turn those into op- when you use objects, you can actually pan and address both in your sidewall and your side array and your rear array and your ceiling array. You can address individual speakers and you can make stuff really move. It's it's incredibly effective and it sounds cool. In a home theater environment, if if you're 712, maybe, you know, you've got two speakers on the ceiling, an object going from front to back in the ceiling, you can't hear that because you just got two, even even four, it, you're, you're not going to really get that same sense of panning that you will in a theatrical Atmos environment. 7-1, it's all point source. There's no array there for the object to individually move down along the side wall. So mm. even, even in, that, in that sense, you know, we have sort of um, storytelling tools in, at, in, in the theatrical world that we don't have in home theater that that you know when you guys are mixing for music since you're primarily mixing for home you you don't have yet either it's almost a little frustrating because you you hear something like if i know something's going straight to streaming i'm going to mix it differently than i will if it's going into a, into a theater because it's still two different things so i think that we're i'm i'm thrilled that that music's getting finally getting the surround treatment i think is the the, the big deal, because think about all the times, I mean, I don't know how many you did, but I did a bunch of 5-1 records back in the late 90s and early 2000s that nobody ever heard. Right. And and one of the things from my perspective about the whole thing is that I never bought into past surround formats because of the very thing you're talking about. I've always said to myself, well, that's great, but who the hell is going to hear that? And it wasn't until Apple made their announcement that I went, okay, now there's an avenue. I see this thing having legs. My prediction, and I think I've said it on a past episode with someone else, and I'll say it again, is I think there is going to come a time in the not too distant future, meaning like year or two at most, that all these people, Amazon, Apple, Sonos, you name it, they're going to take those that's that wireless speaker technology and they're going to take that opportunity to sell us as consumers multiple speakers it's like hey you can have a little starter kit four speakers for x amount of dollars and you can keep adding to increase you know your resolution and they'll just they'll have it in tiers and at some point you know they'll just say oh take your iphone communicate to the speakers that Apple sells, and boom, instant Atmos in an apartment, in a house, in a bedroom, you know, wherever you are, and do it all a cart. And I think that's my prediction of what I think is going to happen. And then it's going to open the door for watching movies, listening to music. It's going to be all all encompassing. And I think you're right too. And and that's ultimately where um, people will get hooked because uh, you know, take the technical part of this aside, but you know what they're doing with the 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 binaural spatialization for the for AirPods, right? Or for listening in stereo. Um, I I don't understand that algorithm. I haven't really spent much time with it, so I can't really speak to it. But if you get somebody who's listening in headphones and hears, you know, Rocket Man, and hears gets the sense of something going up and around them, and goes. Wow, that's cool. I'd like to hear that in my living room. And maybe they have a sound bar at home. And just like you said, they go out and they buy a cup. They have a Sonos sound bar and they buy a cup, you know, four Sonos ones. And all of a sudden they have seven one and they go, this is great. Could I put those on the ceiling? Could I get a different sound bar that's 
that's projecting stuff up, you know, using delays to get me that sense of something coming around me. People have to, they kind of have to hear it to get hooked. And that's never the price of admission in the past with DVD audio and SACD and all that stuff. It's, it presupposed that you had to have, you know, a 5-1 system for your movies, uh, which even a lot of people didn't have, you know, back then. I was still so new. And now I mm-hmm. think it's becoming because, and you're, I think you're right. It's, maybe it's because of sound bars or, you know, you have to buy something because the speakers in these tiny, you know, super thin TVs don't exist. So you have to get something. So, you know, people are starting to ask the question and they're starting to listen. And that's, that's kind of cool. I could go on and on. I'm sure my audience is like, oh my God, this is becoming the Atmos podcast. When you do record for music, do you have a home setup? Do you, uh, do you go to studios? Like what, what do you do now? Cause I know you still have some gear because I borrowed a lot of your gear for many years. There's still some tape on, on, on some of my gear that you, with your uh, handwriting on it. Don't ever take that off. No, no, <laughs> I won't. Um, you know, what was interesting is when I, when I, a few years ago, I moved out of San Francisco, I had like a little tiny space in my house, my old house in San Francisco, but it was never really properly set up, you know, I, I could do stuff in stereo. I mixed some things there, but it was never, uh, I could never record there. And some friends of mine that, that I'd been making music with for years and years and years have this kind of, you know, it's, it's literally an old metal and wood shop that starting in the eighties, they started turning into a rehearsal space and they built a, a little control room and, you know, slowly but surely over all the years, they've, They've made it a little better, and then I've contributed a little bit. And and when I moved, I moved all my gear into their space, you know, and tuned the room as best as I could. Still needs work, but we're set up there, and 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 it's it's a bit of a blessing because I can pretty much track anything um, within reason, band wise, in this space. And you know, it's it's ours. You know, we all have a key to the to the door, and and we come and go when we want. And it's that's you know, also a, a real blessing. You know, that said, uh, if I want to go track drums, I'm going to go into a, a nice room. I, I went during the pandemic, actually, I, I hadn't seen Ari in years and and we went and did a weekend tracking at Laughing Tiger. Wow. That's right. Laughing Tiger's still up and running. Yep. Still up and running. Sounds great. Had a blast, you know, went in early on a Saturday morning, spent the morning setting up, miking up, um, Ari has this guy that he works with named Aaron, who was just a joy to work with. And and we just had a, had a ton of fun and we set up, we, you know, spent the morning drinking coffee and talking about microphones and drums. And we got through, you know, tracked, it was like four songs, um, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, and had a little time left over on Sunday. And then, you know, he's got a beautiful piano there too, and big grand piano. And we mic'd it up put six mics on it, three stereo pairs, just to, just cause we could and had a blast and, and, you know, got piano parts and, you know, there's nothing's ever going to beat a properly built room. You know, we can all, we can have all of our projects too, as we were talking about that too. I mean, I, I, I love the fact that the, the great equalizer that anybody can, can make music now. And I, I encourage everybody who has any kind of an inkling to grab a microphone and a field recorder or a, or a laptop and, Record sounds, record your voice, play, record your, your instrument. It's, it's because we can going into a, a recording studio that was built for making great sounding records. There's still nothing like that. It's wonderful. Yeah, I, I agree. 
I'm a big fan of infrastructure. I love going to a place where I really don't have to bring anything. I just show up and I know that things are going to work. And know that you can look at a patch bay and go, uh, oh, right, that's there, that's there. And, you know, there's an analog console and, and, and things work as you expect them to. And they sound great. And you got a nice collection of microphones. And Or there's an assistant. Well, and Aaron was assisting me. I mean, he's a great engineer in his own right, but, you know, he was there to because I didn't know the room very well. And, and you know, he'd be like, he, what would have taken me 20 minutes to figure out? He just did. But I think there's also something to be said for going into funky places because there's a character there. Uh, there's an, uh, an acoustic character. Uh, there's flaws. There's, there's an edge to it. It can really shape the outcome and help, help you tell the story in a little bit different way when you don't have a perfectly tuned, you know, beautiful, you know, mix magazine cover kind of studio. When you don't have that, it, it's, it's, I think it's still a beautiful thing. Well, you know, I mean, that's kind of, kind of what I deal with on the right, on a regular basis, but also like how many times did you just go, you know, let's, let's go into that house and record something, you know, and you end up doing a, a, a vocal in a bathroom because you can, I mean, that, that stuff's awesome. I mean, it's a blast. Let's talk about survival for a minute and, and, you know, you're in a position where you've got how far are you booked out for for working on films right now as as of today i've got let's say september of next year <laughs> oh my god okay so it's june of 2022 yeah i mean june- i have some I, I i have some time off or 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 time that i can fill it, it during that but yeah i i've got after the project I'm on now is done, I've got three more projects that I'll be working on in some capacity between now and the end of the next summer, beginning of the fall. So that's some financial security. Um, is that a union-based gig? Uh, they're all union-based gigs, yep. Okay. So there's there's rules about overtime, et cetera. And- yeah, I mean, it, as we tended to be in, in the past, in the music side of things, it's, I, I work hourly. You know, it's not, it's not a flat rate. So, and I, and I think that's sort of the great equalizer in that, you know, the, the client, the client asks you to work extra time. They, they pay you for it. You know, with all of these things that, you know, a client comes to you and says, we want to do this type of project and we think it's going to, you know, we have this kind of budget and we look at a script or look at a rough cut of the film and we go, well, we think it needs this much work. And, you know, we bid it out and, you know, make an agreement on, on the, um, you know, the allocation of the people and the time. And then, you know, if something falls off the rails, whether it's changes or, or, or something comes in late or something has to change, you know, then, it, then things get adjusted, but it, it's all pretty well thought out and, and scheduled. You're in a position where you're, you're not thinking too much about your, your financial uh, life in terms of just surviving because you've got work planned out and we, you know, you mentioned your gear, you dumped a bunch of gear at the, at the studio that you share with some folks. And so there's not the concern of, wow, I better sell that because I need to pay the bills. You're kind of covered in this department. Yeah. I, I, I did reach a point where I, I, I almost sold a bunch of my gear and, and I'm glad I didn't because, um, I, I could never have replaced it. Yeah, because you've got some, uh, you've got some V seventy sixes, if I'm correct, if I remember. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. It's actually kind of fun to put my V seventy sixes and my Helios's up against the UA stuff. 
because because it, <laughs> it's all it's all UA hardware based in in the studio too. So it's it's kind of fun to to AB the two of them. Yeah, well, I think they get as close as anybody does. They do. As a matter of fact, we'll nerd out. Do one quick uh, tech gear nerd out thing. Um, I was hearing kind of a, a noise that I that I wasn't sure was real. Let's put it. Uh, and I narrowed it down to my dis- one of my distressors, and I thought that's something's wrong. I need to get I need to get this looked at. And then I I have two distressors, and I put it through the other distressor, and I said it exactly the same thing, and I put the same mic and the same mic pre thread, and I was like, that's doing it too. And then I put it through a distressor, a UA distressor, made the same noise, and I went, okay, I give up. I have to live with it. Yeah, you know that's that, yeah. the other thing that's so strange. I mean, you and I. Talk, talk about this a lot. Analog signal flow and analog signal to noise ratio. What we were kind of taught about about you know really keeping our noise floor low and 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 keeping things clean. You we expect so much um, audio cleanliness from these digital workflows, and you start to hear like even the slightest little thing. And you're like, oh my god, I can hear something that's wrong, and then you realize that's the gear. That's what we, and back in the day, before we silenced everything and made absolutely everything pristine, you know, we were always battling to make sure we didn't let noise get built up and be a problem, but there was always something. Like go and, go and turn on that 800 plugin in, in UA and toggle the noise button on and off. Right. Right. I mean, that's, you forget, that's what we heard every day for our whole lives in the studio for a long time. Yeah. And it's funny too, because talking to the older generation who is just over it. They're just like, you know, some younger generation people or, or or some people in general are just like, Oh, I want to get back to, you know, the analog way. And some of the older people are like, no, you don't. We, we fought hard to get past that. And now, you know, it's, it's always interesting to hear those arguments and you know that I I'm still doing some contract work for UA, right? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I worked on the distressor. Oh, did you really? It sounds yeah. great. It had uh, Dave's blessing, you know, Dave Deer's blessing. So no, it's it, it really does sound great, and it's like I said, it's nice to have the real thing. I thought something was wrong with one of my distressors, and then when the UA one did it, I was like, uh, okay, it's not. There's nothing wrong with my distressor. But you know, I think the to to go back to your thing about you know analog versus digital and and the arguments that people make for the longest time, we did want to get back there because the digital stuff didn't sound as good. And there was a, there was a, there was a period of time where the technology was great, but it, it, we, were, we were still making compromises, I think. Now I don't really see those compromises. Like I don't feel like I have to go and put something through a tape machine anymore. You know, whereas in the early days of digital, you did. I mean, even just getting to high sample rate made such a huge change in in how we made made records and made movies you know i mean in like going out and recording stuff and i'm sure we talked about this in episode 101 but just to to fill the audience and this this is always fascinating to me you were one of the people in the early days of pro tools that bought pro, there was people that bought pro tools rigs on these leases and then they would rent them to productions that were working whether it's you know a, a studio or a band you were one of those people. And I just, to this day, I think, wow, talk about seizing the moment of this new technology. So when you talk about, you know, the early days of digital, you know, because you bought into that technology 
far earlier than a lot of other people, including many studios. Well, that was actually, you know, we talked about having gear and, and surviving. That was one of the ways we survived or I survived because, you know, it was such a, it was such a, a big deal for any studio to, to invest in, you know, the studios were always, as you know, running, running studios, they, we, it's hard to run a studio and make money, let alone invest in new gear. So when you have a client that comes in and goes, well, I want Pro Tools and, you know, the studio owner can, can look at me or look at, at you or Patrick was another guy back in the early days that did it a lot. And they're like, yeah, I'll, I, I can rent you my rig for the next month. You know, and it allowed them to to rent it, to bill for it, to make the client happy without having to go and buy three or six Pro Tools rigs for the whole studio that you really couldn't afford to buy and maintain. And it was a little bit of job security for me because, you know, not only were they renting my rig, but I was, you know, the assistant on the project and I knew how to run it and I knew how to maintain it. I was right there with it the whole time. You know, it was it was a lot better for for Arnie to rent it from me and have me there on site with it all the time than it was for him to rent it from somebody else who, if something went wrong, they had to call at three in the morning. And for the audience, we're talking about Arnie Frager, who used to be one of the owners of the plant. One, one we'll call an administration of the, of the plant at, at some point. And it's, and it's funny today because, you know, we, we just, we take pro tools, we take all this stuff for granted. It's just like, Oh, it's just how it is. Absolutely. Yeah, I bought my first Pro Tools rig in '94, January of '94. Mm. So that was that's a long time ago. That's a very long time ago. I think my first rig was in '98, and Dave Anderson, who's still at Avid, Dave was one of the people that helped me get a rig long ago uh, through Cutting Edge on an employee discount. Yep, and I had you know it was like a. It was a Mac 9600. Now you're dating us. Um, yeah. I, Running on two, two hamsters. <laughs> on one wheel. Uh, on one wheel, right. Two wheels was too much money. Exactly. No, I um, I was sitting on the loading dock of audio images with after just loading all this first Pro Tools rig into my car, sitting there with Brian Botel, and he says, can you keep a secret? I'm like, sure. And he told me that they were going to go start cutting edge. I was like, that's cool. When? He goes, next month. So this might have been December of 93. And um, and I said, Brian, why didn't you tell me before? And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, I could have been your first customer. I would I would have waited a few weeks to buy the gear. <laughs> I wanted to be the first cutting edge customer. I wasn't. That's so Brian, too. Oh, yeah. Can you keep a secret? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now we're talking inside baseball of, of Bay Area pro audio lore that uh, some people in the outlying areas are like, what the hell are these guys talking about? All right, about? we should probably, yeah. And so, yeah. Well, look, dude, it's like 540 here, and uh, I've already had one of the kids poke their heads in. So uh, uh, I've seen him. Oh, you mean that little giant that just poked his yeah, head in? Yeah, little giant is the right way of putting it. Little giant, right. So I should let you go because I know that you got stuff going on too, but um, are you maintaining any kind of website or social media presence or do you just hunker down and do the work and stay down honestly i don't i don't really keep a social media presence because i'm I'm not a big fan actually when people want to reach out and talk to me it's i ask them to just reach out and talk to me people can email me i'm i'm pretty open about my email address it's left at laszlo.com 
if anybody has any questions for me, that's the best way to find me. If I will answer as best as I can. That That's what I'm going to put. Usually I put websites or Instagram addresses or whatever, or Instagram profiles. I'll put your email address and, and we'll leave it at that. Hey, good to see you though. Great to see you. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Lef Lefferts here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I uh, want to thank you for being here today. And I want to remind you, of course, if you have a guest suggestion, since this show operates on guests, there is a form, guest suggestion form, over at workingclassaudio.com. So make sure and check that out. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and that magical voice at the top of the show is Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And as usual... Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.